Our scripture reading today is in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Um, we have these scriptural, scripture journals. I know there are a few more out front um, if you have a Bible to pull out. Um, but that's Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Um, it reads, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogue, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives." and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of, them were, none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogues were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kelly. Yeah. So today, as Kelly read, we are continuing in our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. You know, last week, just a reminder, we covered how Jesus, the Son of God, conquered every temptation the devil threw at him in the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days. That at his weakness, Jesus proved to be ready and worthy to be the sinless Savior to bring salvation to the world. So now as we look in these passages, in these verses here, we see Jesus finally begin his public ministry. And what we see in the opening verses of our text is that Jesus is trending. Jesus is trending. Now trending is this word where the, it, peop, you're growing in popularity really quickly, like a social media term, all right? If there was Facebook Live, if there was Instagram or Twitter or I don't know what people do now, TikTok maybe, uh, hashtag who is Jesus or hashtag man doing miracles would be trending throughout all the known world at this time. Jesus would be trending everywhere. Because if you go back to verse 14 and 15, this is what it says. It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. 
Now, Jesus' ministry, he primarily began in teaching in the synagogues. This is his custom, which wasn't just a religious gathering for the Jews. This was like the public community gathering of the Jews. And so he was, he was teaching to a large audience. And his teaching was so captivating and so powerful that people couldn't help but spread the word. But if you look in your uh, scripture journals or your Bibles and you scroll down or if you flip to verse 31, what's interesting is that in verse 31 you read, and this is not our text for today, but just, just in context, you read, and he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Now I have this map behind me, and it's the map of Galilee. And you see in Galilee there are many cities, and the first one that I have kind of labeled there is Capernaum. And if you look in verse 31 through 44, now that's next week's passage, one of the main things Jesus does is he miraculously heals diseases and casts out demons. And he is doing this all throughout Galilee. And I, and I share this background info because in our story today, most commentators and scholars, they, they agree that verses 16 to verse 30, our text for today, the story of Jesus in Nazareth, most likely happened about a year into Jesus's public ministry. So what happened in verse 31 in Galilee and Capernaum, this actually happened earlier, and this details more of what was going on in verses 14 and 15 of our text. So when Jesus arrives in Nazareth in verse 16, his blue-collar hometown, where there was around only about 700 people living in Nazareth, these people would have already known and heard of all that Jesus had done in Galilee. They would all be wondering, like, is this the long-awaited Messiah to rescue all of Israel? And we have to just kind of remember that our gospel accounts and you know, a lot of the narrative in Scripture, it's not always written chronologically. For Luke especially, he likes to put key events at the forefront to summarize the detailed accounts of what's going to happen. So the question is, why then does Luke share this story of Nazareth first in our text? Even though it happened about a year into Jesus' ministry, it's because in Nazareth is where Jesus gives the clearest declaration of who he is and what his mission will be. That for the rest of the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to go through all of Luke, even if it takes two years when we get through it, we'll see how Jesus fulfills this declaration. So today what I have is I have three questions that I want to answer. And this walks us through our passage for today. And the three questions are, you see it behind me on the screen, who is Jesus, what is Jesus' mission, and how will the people, or how will we, respond? Let's jump in, all right? First question, who is Jesus? If you go to our text, verse 16, after uh, a journey of teaching and ministry, the, in verse 16, we'll see that when Jesus comes back home to Nazareth, people are going to be like, Jesus is back. He's back in Nazareth. And I bet on that synagogue on that day when he opens the scroll of Isaiah and that's given to him, I bet every single person and child in town is at or near that synagogue. All eyes were on him. Like, what would he say? And so he opens to Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. He goes there intentionally, and he reads this. And this is verse 18 of our text. Let me just read it again. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's 
favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And then Jesus gives probably the shortest but most powerful sermon in the world. He says in verse 21, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop and the sermon. That's what Jesus does. And he walks off the stage and sits down. On this day, Jesus confirms to his entire hometown, I am exactly who the prophet Isaiah was talking about. That I am the anointed one. And if you look at the screen behind me, this word anointed one, which in the Hebrew is where we get the word Messiah, and in the Greek language, which is the original language of the New Testament, Hebrew is the Old Testament, in the Greek, that's where we get the word Christ. We say Jesus Christ not because that's his last name, as some people make it confused. It's, we say it because it's his title. That is who he is. And this title was only given to kings back in the day. So Jesus Christ, Jesus the King. But more importantly, what this reveals, especially for the hometown here, is that not only is Jesus the anointed one, but in one of the shortest sermons that he declares, he also says that he is the fulfillment, the yes and amen to all of God's promises since the beginning of time. That every prophecy and promise God made in the Old Testament, Jesus has fulfilled or will fulfill one day. That for every generation and generation waiting and waiting for a Savior King to rescue them, Jesus is saying loudly and clearly, I am here. You know, this got me thinking a little bit. A few months ago, uh, I think some of you know about this, but a few months ago, our home that we purchased less than a year ago had a leak, a water leak. And our master bathroom toilet was leaking with some water, which ended up in the ceiling of our dining room. And I did what any home, new homeowner did at that time. What I did was I freaked out, okay? Like, I freaked out. I was worried. I was scared. Like, what are we going to do? I started touching it. I started, like, researching online. Like, what can I, what can I do to fix this? I called some people. And finally, I, I got someone. They told me, like, you have to tear up the floor and the ceiling, and dry it out, and fix all of it and put it back together. And all through all that time they were explaining to me what they're going to do, the only thing in my mind that was going was like, how much is this going to cost me? Like, how expensive will this repair be? And then they finally quoted me the price. And it was about $15,000. And I was like, oh my, I don't have $15,000. Who does have $15,000? And so I was very worried and very scared. But thank goodness for home insurance. Thank goodness for State Farm for home insurance. Uh, because I talked with our rep, and minus the deductible and some plumbing work, they said they promised to me that they will cover it all, that they'll cover the rest. Uh, That was their promise. And so the people, the company got to work. They dried out everything. But before they could start doing the reconstruction to the house, to like fixing the ceiling and the floor and doing the painting and all that, they said they needed the payment from the insurance company because it hadn't come yet. And so I got a little worried, and so I called the insurance company, no word. I emailed them, no word. I like, tried every way to get a response, but no response for a couple of days. And that's when I really started to get worried. I was like, why aren't they answering? Are they, are they going to back out of this? Is it too much money? I became really anxious, and I remember even one night I had a hard time sleeping because of this. Because I was so worried, would they fulfill the promise that they ma- made to me and pay this $15,000 that I can't afford. Days felt like months. But by a week, a week and a half later, they finally came through, 
They answered, they sent the check-in, and they began to do the work. And immediately, my shoulders just felt like a thousand pounds lighter, and I slept like a baby the next day. The promise was kept, and I rejoiced. Do you know how long the people of Israel had been waiting for a Messiah? How long they had been waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled? It's not a week and a half, not even a few years. Nearly 1,500 years or 60 generations since their forefather, Abraham. We have a hard time waiting in traffic. This is like another level. Through prosperity and poverty, through wars and peace, through good leaders and bad leaders, even through slavery, genocide, and more horrendous experiences, to hear that the Messiah is here would have been such a joyous experience for these listeners. That when Jesus said that he is here, their whole atmosphere would have changed. Imagine how relieved, how exhilarated, how hopeful these desperate, broken people would have been to hear that their long-awaited, long-awaited king has finally come. Jesus was the yes and amen to all of God's promises, and he is the best news that the Israelites could have ever heard. This is who Jesus was, but he doesn't stop. He continues on. And the second question that I have for today is what is his mission? What is Jesus' mission? Going back to verse 18 of our text, if you look with me, let me just read again, and I have it on the screen behind me, the key portion from Isaiah 61. It says, To proclaim, Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the foundational verb of this prophecy is repeated three times, and it's the word proclaim. This bookends Jesus' mission on earth, that Jesus' mission was, and still to this day, was a message or a declaration to be spoken and made known to all people. That as you'll see, I'm going to go line by line here for this prophecy, Jesus proclaims a message that's not like this world's. The first line we see is that Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news or gospel, that's where we get the word gospel from. This is off, you know, we use it a lot in church, but back then that word was only really used when there was a victory in battle, when there was good news for a king, which is kind of contradictory to how Jesus is using this, right? He's saying that the poor, which are often the last people to hear this good news, are the ones that he has come to give this good news to. Now, also, this word poor, it's, it's not just for poor who are economically impoverished, but this word poor encapsulates all who are poor, who are spiritually poor, who are relationally poor, who are emotionally, mentally, whatever you want to put in that category, who are feeling impoverished on their own. These are the people who find their backs against the wall and have no choice but to look for someone else, someone like God, to help them. Jesus' mission was to bring these impoverished people a message to make them rich, to make them good. How? The next line, which we see, is he has sent, which is the Spirit of God who sends Jesus, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, again, that word proclaim, but this word liberty, this word liberty can also be translated as set free or release. And throughout the Gospel of Luke and even Acts, whenever you see that word, liberty, it's often associated with salvation. 
It's always tied together with salvation. And these captives are not people in literal prisons, though it's not saying it's not including prisoners. But for the more general sense, these are the captives who are in the strongholds of the devil. Those who are imprisoned in their sin and brokenness. Jesus' mission was to set those captives free. Which if you remember last week in my sermon when I talked about Jesus conquering every temptation and sin and the devil in the wilderness, he, he, is, he is previewing what he has come to do to set people free, just like how he was not succumbed to the temptations in the wilderness. The world and the devil, they imprison people. But Jesus is in the business of setting them free. And the next line goes even deeper to what he's doing. And it says, recovering of sight to the blind. Now, blindness in this context, for us, is a little bit weird, but in this context, blindness was one of the most common diseases in this time period, which is why, if you look at the Gospels, it's really common to see Jesus uh, helping people see, like curing blindness. But blindness also carries a much more like theological or spiritual meaning for the people of Israel. Being physically blind also meant that you would be excluded from temple, which meant that you couldn't enter God's presence or be in fellowship with others. Physical blindness was also believed to be a consequence of one's sin, so it's your fault that you are blind. And as a result, physical blindness also meant that you would be spiritually blind, that you could not spiritually see God or walk correctly in his ways. But Jesus' mission was to heal both physical blindness and spiritual blindness, to have the blind enter into God's presence, to have to heal the damage that sin had left behind, and to help humanity see God and to follow in his righteous ways. The world and the devil does all they do all they can to blind humanity. But Jesus' mission was to give sight and to heal the world's brokenness. And if you go to the fourth line, this continues here, and he says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Again, that word of liberty was to set free and release. But unlike the second line that we have, he uses the word oppressed. Now this word, it carries, uh, it it literally in in the language that's in here, it, it means something that's broken into pieces, something that is shattered. Perhaps the very people who believe that all hope is gone. This could be very much the addict, the slave, the war-torn sufferer, the survivors of abuse, the outcasts, the chronically ill. And Jesus' mission and message for them is, I will free you, is I will heal you. That body, mind, spirit, and soul, the world will bring you down, but my goal is to raise you back up. And finally, Jesus' last line, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is kind of summarizing it all up. Uh, This word, the year of the Lord's favor, I I believe it references back to Isaiah, which is Isaiah 49, verse 8. Let me just read it to you all. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. Jesus announces that this day has come, that the day of salvation promised long ago has now come in him, that no one will be able, that no one will be out of reach 
of the Lord's favor. That everyone, the outsider, the poor, the oppressed, the imprisoned, the crippled, the lonely, the marginalized, the hurting, anyone who recognizes they need help will have a spirit-anointed Messiah that will free them and restore them. Jesus came to free spiritually imprisoned, spiritually blind, spiritually unsaved people so that they will be saved and find the Lord's favor. This is his priority. This is his message. This is his mission. But in that spiritual renewal, I don't want to miss this part, but in that spiritual renewal, this will also lead to his ministry. That Jesus didn't just proclaim a message. That's, all, that's not all he did. But he got his hands dirty. He provided healing. He provided for people. He also provided justice and restoration when he was there in his ministry. Jesus' spiritual renewal provided the gateway for the social and physical renewal to take place in his coming. And even more so when we see the church go throughout history. If you don't know about the history of the church, and if you, you know, research it, it's amazing to see that the church, amidst all the imperfections of it, that the church was the first places where hospitals and orphanages and food banks were born. That many of the first Christians were the ones who were the first to fight slavery, equality among gender and and ethnic lines. They were also many of the first to start shelters and schools and so much more to renewal than just our hearts, but they also cared about the body and the lives, and the communities of people. The church isn't perfect. I'm not going to say that. We're far from perfect. But if you look at so much of the amazing work done in humanity, many of them started with people who followed Christ and for people who were changed and transformed by this message that Jesus was proclaiming. Jesus' first priority, his mission was to transform hearts, and then the good comes afterwards. There's a quote by um, Sid Law Baxter. I believe he's an Australian theologian, and he says this, and I think this really sums up my, my second question. He says, Fundamentally, our Lord's message was himself. He did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come merely to show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As we continue in the Gospel of Luke, we'll see that Jesus embodies his message through his life, through his ministry, and will be ultimately fulfilled through his death and resurrection and promise to come one day where he will reconcile and defeat all things once and for all, that Jesus is the message, and his message was to, and mission was to save all of humanity. Which then leads me to my third question, how will the people, or how will we, respond? It's a really interesting story where if we jump down to verse 28 in our story, they are filled with wrath. And they try, to, they try to throw Jesus off a cliff. And this cliff, if historians say in verse 20, uh, in, uh, in the time of Jesus, would be a 400-foot cliff. Now why? Why did it get this extreme? If you look at verse 22, it's really weird because it says they all spoke of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. 
So it's weird because these people were so excited. Like, why would they ever want to throw Jesus off a cliff? Like, this one was supposed to free them, not just from sin, but from the Roman Empire that was occupying them. But then they say this line at the end of verse 22, and this is a key, past, key point of the story. They say, is not this Joseph's son? Now, this question isn't one of hostility or doubt, as some of you might have thought or maybe even been taught. This question is identifying Jesus' father, which is Joseph, and it's not diminishing his status. Instead, the question is to be taken as an exclamation. This is Joseph's boy. This is one of our own. It's kind of like this. So uh, growing up, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, so not too far from here. Um, And I also grew up as a child to Korean immigrants. Now in St. Louis, there aren't a lot of my people, if you know what I mean. There's just not a lot of Koreans there. Uh, But whenever, whenever our family went out somewhere and my mom met someone who was Korean, it's like the world just got a little brighter it just got more people were just better and they were just more happiness to be spread around and as soon as they found that this person was korean an instant connection was made and by a week or two i'm already having dinner at their house like that's kind of how it goes in that time because there weren't many koreans around that area but what's even more special about this connection is what i like to call the korean discount okay the korean discount so some of you might know this i see some nods Um, If we ever walked into a restaurant or a store or even a dentist office and we knew the owners were Korean, we already are assuming in our minds that we're going to, when we get that bill, that we're going to get that discount because we're Korean. Just because you're my people, we're going to help one another. Confession, just confession here. It's gotten so bad in me that whenever I go into a dry cleaner, now, if you guys don't know, the history of Korean immigration, many dry cleaners are owned by Koreans. It's okay, it's just a reality. It's, histor- it's like historically proven, okay? Um, I can explain why later if you want to know why. But whenever I enter into one and I see that that person looks Korean, I immediately greet them in Korean. And they all automatically know, and that connection is made. And I'm hoping that when I get that bill, that a discount is on that bill. Okay, I want that discount. I, I, it's, it's. I'm not ashamed. It's kind of, it's kind of. Uh, okay, I just leave it there. Okay, but, but whenever I don't get that discount, okay, whenever I see the full price on that receipt, and they're Korean, I'm not gonna lie. I get, I get a little irritated. I get a little bitter. Um, Are they truly Korean? And as my dad always told me in my life, he always said this. He said, don't you know how much our people have suffered and struggled? A country that literally war split them into two. Our people have immigrated and they should stick together. We should help one another. Your blood is my blood. So we have to help each other. That's kind of what he said. And that's often how many ethnic groups and people handle life. Nothing wrong with it, but it's just the reality. So going back to our story, for a small town people of Nazareth who had just come to rebuild their town after being 70 years in exile and just rebuilt it, and they're small, they're blue collar, they were probably just as or even more proud than my Korean family. They are all probably thinking that the Messiah is from our town. How much of a discount is he going to give us? But Jesus didn't come and play favorites. In verse 23, Jesus quotes a proverb, and it says, Physician, heal yourself. And he references Capernaum again. And he says that most likely what you all are doing 
is that you know that I'm from this hometown. You know that, you know, probably my extended family is here. And what you are expecting now is me as the Messiah and King to perform the same miracles that you heard about that happened all throughout Galilee. Not because you believe that I'm the Messiah, but because Jesus, I, am from your own people. That I should heal and provide because I'm one of your own. And in a way, what was happening here is that the people in Nazareth believed that they deserved Jesus' message and healing. Just because they had known a little bit about Jesus growing up, that that then granted them special favor with God. And in verse 25 and 27, if you look in your text here, Jesus shares these two stories. These would be well-known stories for them. So this is not like foreign stories, like maybe for us, but these are familiar stories. And he shares about two people, the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha, and how for them, when they were in a time and they were a prophet, they weren't respected by their own people, and they didn't play favorites. That in 1 Kings 17, which is the first story, Elijah, during a famine that lasted three and a half years, did not perform a miracle amongst the people of Israel, but he provided oil and bread for a poor Sidonian widow and her son. And in 2 Kings 5, the second story that Jesus gives, Elisha heals Naaman's leprosy, which is a horrendous common skin disease. But he didn't do it for an Israelite. He did it for someone who was from Syria. All to say to this home crowd, the people who he's grown up with and even some of his family there, that Jesus is saying, I, the Messiah, show grace, perform miracles, bring salvation to the outsiders and to the broken people and those who long for it. I do not bring it to people who think they deserve it. Not because they saw how poor, not because they, they saw how poor and broken they truly were. We, Jesus came to bring the message to them. That those in Nazareth, what happened for them is they wanted the healing without faith in the healer. They wanted all the benefits of the king without their allegiance to the king. And as a result, they tried to kill him. And in verse 30, I don't know how Jesus did this. I don't know if he put on the the invisibility cloak or did some tricks, but he got past them and he walked away and he left town. But this brings me to the question, and the question that I have for all of us, and even for myself, is that do you believe, or is there ever a time where you believe that you deserve Jesus' salvation? Is there a time where you believe that you are entitled to God's favor? As much as we would all like to say no, I believe we think this more than we like to believe. How much have we looked more highly at our credentials, our titles, and our accomplishes, accomplishments than our poverty and our need? How much have we looked more at our good works, at our purity record, at our scripture knowledge and our theological knowledge than our own brokenness and sin? How much have we looked more at our family background, our material securities, our comforts of life than our vulnerability and even just are prone to death. I know for me, it's so easy to come to God and say this, God, I have my life together. I'm not an excessive sin. I read my Bible, I pray, I come from a Christian family, I serve people, I help people, I give money to the church. I even have a career in the church, okay? Like, if anyone, I deserve salvation. But that's not who Jesus came to save. 
Jesus came to save the migrants coming into Chicago because they are fleeing the violence and difficulties in their homeland. Jesus came to save the forgotten and hurting who are in hospitals, rehab centers, prisons, and war-torn countries like in the Middle East and elsewhere. Jesus came to save the university student who is lost, lost, alone, and desperate for community. Jesus came to save the homeless asking for money at the intersection or those who are hiding under the viaducts. Jesus even came to save the government officials, the soldiers, the corporate executives who feel hopeless from the world's empty promises. Jesus came to save those who knew they needed saving. Because the next time Jesus faces an angry mob in Luke, Jesus doesn't slip away. He could have, but instead, he willingly gets arrested, mocked, spit on, falsely accused, beaten, and then thrown out to be crucified for no fault of his own. He submits to the Father's will, and he saves all of humanity, not by his might or by his strength, but by his humble sacrifice by his death on the cross that in his death every single one of our sins our pains and our pathway to death will be forgiven and reconciled through him but in three days jesus would not stay dead this is the good news that he will rise again and that when he did rise from that grave to defeat all sin and death and the devil once and for all he did that so that whoever confesses their sin and their poverty Jesus says we'll find his mercy and his love. Whoever confesses their sorrows and their hardships, Jesus says we'll find their abundant joy in him. Whoever confesses their bondage, their addictions, Jesus says you will find freedom in me. Whoever confesses that they're, that they're, they're blind or that they're lonely or they're hurting will see and will find the everlasting peace and beauty and presence that's given through them in Jesus. And that for even those who confess their fear of death will find their hope in eternal life through Christ. This is the good news for those who confess their need. So practically for us, how are then we to respond? Two things. I want to end with these two things. The first thing we need to do is to embrace Jesus in our weakness, to embrace Jesus in our weakness. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul reminds us of this. He says that Jesus even said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We embrace Christ and all that he is to offer by embracing our weakness and relying on Christ's strength. It's the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, that God's message was for the poor. And so if we are to receive it, we need to embrace our weakness and our poverty, to accept all that Jesus says and commands and to rely on his grace alone. And the second thing we need to do, which is, I think, harder, is to embrace other weak people like ourselves to embrace other weak people like ourselves. We can't do this alone. 
And if we're not careful, we'll begin to trust and follow the ways and strengths of the world. What we need to do is we need to be in communion with broken people, with poor people, with weak people. Why? Because in their brokenness, we'll begin to see our brokenness. But we also then can offer the hope of restoration that Christ gives in us. We see that our faith is not because of our achievement, our power, our perfection, but it happens through our surrender and embracing the places and people of brokenness all around us. Let me just end with this. You know, um, as a parent, so I have three kids. If you don't know, I have three kids, five, three, and one, um, all boys. And as I've become a parent, one of the amazing gifts are like, superpowers, I think, is to hear a baby's cry like a mile away, all right? Um, now, I, not, not as much as the father, but like even like at home, my, we'd be watching like a movie, like my wife and I, and like one's like kind of crying upstairs, and she would like say, stop the movie, because the, she's hearing the cry, and then she'll, she'll go up, and we'll look in the monitor, and she's right, they are crying. And it's amazing to see that as parents, you begin to like hear a lot of cries more often, and now as I'm like have more, have kids, and like, as they get older, um, like, I feel like a lot of the cries of babies are kind of similar. They're, they're often very similar. Perhaps moms would disagree with me, but I feel like a lot of cries are similar. And all three of my boys, I feel like their cries were very much the same. Uh, it didn't matter what language this family spoke or what uh, socioeconomic status they were coming from or what gender or birth order. Cries all sound the same in general, all right? It's the universal signal for the most helpless person in the room to call for help. And a parent, any really good parent, will drop everything to help this child. No questions asked, no suspicion if they really need help or not, no demands for the baby to like pay up for their services, no expectations. It's unfiltered, raw parental love. Now, if we expect this from any decent parent, how much more will our Father and Savior and Lord respond to our cries for help? How much more will his love and presence meet us when we earnestly cry for his help like a child? We are all God's children, and the universal, cry, the universal call for help is still a cry, even when we're adults. If we truly cry to him and crying if you know crying you recognize that you need help you don't cry if you don't think you don't need help if you cry no matter where you come from even what you believe i believe god will come to you god will run to you he will help you and the promise of jesus's mission and message is that god will save you and paul reminds of this is in romans ten thirteen, that everyone who calls upon the name of the lord will be saved This is the good news that Jesus came to preach, and we'll see this all throughout the Gospel of Luke. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your message, for your mission. God, we thank you that this is not a message for those who think they have it all together. It's not a message for people who think they are rich, those who think they're good, those those who think that they earn favor or have favor with you, God. But this is a message for those who are poor and broken and in need. And so, Father God, I pray that for all of us, no matter what our weeks have been like, no matter how many accomplishments we have, how much money is in our bank account, how many titles that we have from the university or from our work, no matter who we are, 
God, I pray that we would always recognize our brokenness, that we would come to you like a child, like a babe, crying out, Abba, Father, help us, we pray. May this be our heart cry. May this be our posture as we go throughout the week. May this be our posture when we interact with those in our workplaces, on the streets, or in our home, God. I pray that you would make us people who truly know that we need a Savior like you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.